this is where I've been caught up in shame, <laughs> like very deeply. I, my thoughts of ending my own life turn to, if I'm going to end my life, I need to end my partner's life too. And that was just like the scariest thought. I was like, am I a murderer? And yeah, then I was admitted, um, admitted to a psychiatric ICU and told I had OCD. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Settles. Welcome back, everyone. Excited to be sharing another story with you today. And this one is uh, very, very close to my heart personally. This is actually the most vulnerable I think I've ever been on any platform ever. And that's saying something because I share my story almost every day. But there's one or two percent of my story that I don't share um, just because it's so raw and I actually go into it in this episode along with Lena and Lena is an amazing person and she has inspired me through her willingness to tell such a personal journey to get into my own details of that one percent. I'm actually still feeling slightly uncomfortable around sharing this just because of the fear of misconception and even though I've tried my hardest to explain it uh, because it is incredibly jarring. So I'm trusting that everyone receives this in the way that it's intended. Uh, It's been a long time since I've felt uncomfortable being raw and real and it's a reminder of just how big of a step it is to tell your inner demons to the world. I've done a lot of inner work though to make peace with that and know who I am. And so even though maybe not everyone who listens this will get it, uh, I'm completely comfortable with where I'm at and have gone through everything that I've needed to to get to a point where I can tell this and not be too affected by what people think. So thank you for holding this space for me and holding this space for Lena. So Lena is a doctor who, until she was diagnosed only relatively recently, had been silently dealing with the terrifying symptoms of OCD until she heard about my story from her husband, actually, who had seen a keynote at his workplace just a few months ago. She'd never met anyone with obsessive compulsive disorder. And that sense of feeling alone in your experience can be extremely isolating. So, yeah, this chat is is something special because I remember feeling the same way. We talked about the common misconception of OCD being a disorder where you're obsessively tidying or washing your hands repetitively. And while physical compulsions like that can be a prevalent symptom, for us at least, they are a coping mechanism to get 
some relief from the persistent and unwanted obsessive thoughts. In this episode, both Lena and I share the nature of those thoughts and also disclose some very sensitive experiences that shape the way we view ourselves and the world. We talk about how the most torturous part of OCD is that often it can present you with persistent thoughts about the things you're most fearful of or want least in your life and how intrusive these can be and how how much it makes you question your own personality, your own morality um, and who you are at the core. It can be really lonely when there's a fracture between the way the world perceives you and the way you see yourself. So I'm extremely grateful to Lena for sharing her story in the hope that our listeners who may have had a similar experience or know someone who has can feel less alone. There are trigger warnings in this episode, um, several in fact, uh, including suicidal ideation, references to pedophilia, references to sexual assault, and references to intrusive thoughts, sexual, violent, and homicidal. If this is triggering for you, I would encourage you to pause and wait to listen until you feel ready and perhaps even have a trusted person with you while you listen to this episode. But as we know, going toward the pain and going toward things that we've been burying for a while and looking at them safely and connected, we may be able to get past the infection and the swelling and actually get to that metaphorical broken bone that lives inside our mind so that we can finally start to heal. As always, go slow, go strong, one day at a time. We're all on the journey. So how are you feeling about this chat? Uh, I'm nervous. I, I mean, of course I'm nervous. Um, well, I, I have anxiety, so I get anxious over yeah, everything. You're like, this is my jam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I guess like it's time. It's like the time is right. That's I just feel like, you know, if not now, when? And this is something I really want to do. Yeah, I'm really proud of you. When I read your story, I, um, yeah, I saw a lot of myself in there, but I also saw someone who has been through an incredibly difficult journey and wants to make meaning from it. Yeah, that's that's right. I think mm. that's spot on. And I want to start by understanding Lena a bit more. Yeah. So, can you tell me about your earliest? childhood memory that was pleasant uh I reckon I I don't know how I remember this because I would have only been like three but we're on a family holiday and I got to swim in the adult pool without my floaties on I don't that doesn't even sound legal actually (laughs) (laughs) seems amazing but I don't know, I, I, I reckon I was swimming on a holiday and I felt like a big kid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you felt like a grown-up and I'm sure that that was your first taste of independence really, wasn't it? Yeah, probably, probably. And like surrounded by family and, you know, in the water, that just, that yeah, pretty close to my heart. 
still. Is, so, yeah, is the water a, a bit of a happy, calming place for you? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm. I just really enjoyed swimming. I um, I I actually worked. You know, when you have a little university job, I worked as a pool lifeguard. And when I started uni, that's when all my anxiety kind of manifested. And so my outlet was swimming and um, really found peace in that. And then when I moved down to um, Geelong for med school, I was like living at the beach and kind of took up surfing and, yeah, just really enjoyed um, being in the water. If someone was to describe you in one word as a as a kid, how would they describe you? Ooh, uh, oh, I don't. I don't want to say the first. The first thing that comes to my mind is um, twin. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I think that was very much a part of my identity. Um, yeah, wow. identical twin. Um, and so when I think about that, I'm like, well, I was the quiet one. Mm. So you think about yourself in relation to how you were viewed, which was always together with someone else. Yes. Yeah. And that's, you know, not, not psychoanalyzing, but it's, it's really interesting and beautiful that your first memory was freedom because it sounds like that independence was something that you've wanted from an early age. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. And and so throughout your um teenage years would you describe yourself as quiet as well? Yeah. Um maybe like when I was comfortable in a group of people I could be quite loud and have a lot of fun, but I was never one to you know go up to a stranger and say hello or make small talk um or even like speak to people outside of like my close circle of friends or anything. Mm. Were you, um, did you, so were you quite sporty in school or more academic? Uh, I was academic, but I also played a lot of tennis. Mm, um, why tennis? I don't know. Mom and dad gave me a racket when I was five and I enjoyed it. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm very jealous about the fact that you've ch- chosen the medical route. I mean, being a doctor is one of my lifelong dreams that I may or may not get round to. Is that something you've always known that you wanted to do? It's not too late, Mitch. You can do it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Honestly, it's on my uh, it's on my midlife crisis uh, checklist. I've already had about four midlife okay. crises, um, but on my next one. Uh, cause I, that was kind of the, the dream. And then I didn't want to be a doctor for the body. I wanted to be a doctor for the mind. And yeah. the, I did a degree in psychology after I left the tech world. And that was kind of my bridge. Mm. And the goal is still to continue to go that, back there and get my MD and become a psychiatrist. But for the moment, I feel like my time is best served doing entrepreneurship in mental health yeah. space. Cool. But I'm fucking jealous and <laughs> that in and of itself comes with a lot of pressure, right? Doing the GAMSAT and... Oh, my God. Yeah, the GAMSAT was awful. Um, I was like my having my GPA, like every grade I did in undergrad, like measured. Um, it was really hard to, to kind of get through, but um, 
I don't know, you know that like, well, if I become a doctor, then I'll be happy. And you're, you're striving for something and it gives you purpose and direction. And, um, and I, I kind of just had this sense that it was the right thing for me to do. Um, you know, during my undergrad, I decided. So. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, so how old are you now? I'll be 28 soon. 28, and you are in your residency at the moment? Yes. Wow. Do you, like, have you, I have to ask this because I always ask doctors this, what's the most gory thing you've seen in the emergency room? Uh, okay, trigger warning. <laughs> I had a, trigger warning. I had a lady um, who was attacked by her pet goat and and the horn, the horn of the goat went through her leg in one side and out the other. Yikes. Yeah. I didn't have to deal with that for very long because it was way out of my depth and I just had to get the surgeons on board. But yeah, that was pretty gross. God, it's so cool. So cool. I'd love to just be like, hand me the scissors, stat, give me the <laughs> paddle, stat. I don't know if that really happens, but, you know, in my mind, that's what happens in a hospital. Everyone's just saying stat, running around, handing <laughs> shit to each other. Maybe in an emergency <laughs> department, but uh, emergency is not for me. So, yeah. 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 I don't think I'd be in there for the long haul either. So do you remember the first time where you knew that your mind was a bit different? Yeah. Um I can't, I can't pinpoint like a time, but, um, like when I look back at it, I'm like, oh yeah, when I was like a teenager, maybe like 15, 16, 17, um, I was having thoughts that I don't think I was having thoughts, which maybe everyone has, but I was responding to those thoughts in an abnormal way. So that was, um, like obsessive thoughts, ruminations, um, a lot of intrusions, um, and I, I actually don't know when. The first time I described it to someone, it was a GP and I was 21 and I told her about my bat and I had I'd been imagining myself um, with a baseball bat. It sounds like a cartoon, really. I'd be imagining myself with a baseball bat and there'd be two of me and one of me would be bashing up the other one. Mm-hmm. And this would happen like as soon as I said something I regretted or um, I got a glare from someone that I misinterpreted um, or I had a thought that I thought made me perverted. Um, mm-hmm. And I think um, that kind of developed into me using my bat to, um, like in my imagination, harm other people. And so I just had a lot of violent thoughts. And I think that started, yeah, when I was like a late teenager. Yeah. Uh, what, what were your first impressions when, when those thoughts started to come on? Were you like, I'm possessed or I'm a, a lunatic? What was that? Okay. So my thoughts actually started as um, like sexual intrusive thoughts mm-hmm. and I thought it was puberty. I was like, oh, I'm just like weirdly turned on by weird things. Um, It wasn't until the violent thing started that I was like, um, 
I, I don't know. Lots of things crossed my mind. Um, whether I had like really rigid thoughts and I was like really socially anxious. Um, but never, never did OCD cross my mind. And what, what age was it when it started to become a category of something versus this is just who I am? Like um, when it was like, oh, I, I think I have OCD. Oh, that was this year, Mitch. <laughs> when I finally accepted it. No, um, that was like this year, but um, I it was my first year of being a doctor and I was seeing a um, psychologist and I was, I was really torn all the time. I was like, talk, don't talk, talk, don't talk. And I was um, so indecisive. And I saw this psychologist for like six months and I literally, I either sat there silent or I'd talk about completely, well, probably irrelevant things. Like I never spoke about the goings on of my mind even though I probably knew I needed to because that's why I was, you know, paying a psychologist. Mm-hmm. So one day I, um, I was having, I was having um, thoughts that really scared me. Um, my obsessions had turned into seemingly plans um, to take my life. Um, and I was writing um, down just on scrap paper um, some of the thoughts that came to my mind. And one day I was just like, I was, I was swimming and I was like, I cannot get out of my mind. And I told this psychologist um, that I'd purchased something that like a means to end my life. And, um, and she just, she just blurted it out. She was like, Lena, I think you have OCD. And, um, I, I really didn't believe it, but she gave me this website, um, to look up and I, and I got home from my appointment and I looked it up and what I read was, um, some, some people who have OCD have, um, suicidal obsessions that last their whole life. And I was really confronted by that. I was like, if I'm, if I'm going to have these thoughts for the rest of my life, I, I don't, I don't want that. And the only way I could see out was to end it. Um, so, uh, and I, I got, um, you know, dangerous things happened in that, in that time. There was a time where I was, I was home alone. Um, and I, I, I say I dance the dance. I just, I got too close. And, um, the next day I was so distant from my partner and he asked me what was wrong and I couldn't articulate it. And, um, and then I felt really, I felt really guilty. I was like, how could I possibly leave him? How could I, yeah, how could I leave him? Um, and then this is where, this is where I've been caught up in shame, <laughs> like very deeply. I, my thoughts of ending my own life turned to, if I'm going to end my life, 
I need to end my partner's life too. Mm-hmm. And um, that was just like the scariest thought. I was like, am I a murderer? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, then I was admitted, um, admitted to a psychiatric ICU and told I had OCD. It's amazing to hear someone just say it out loud, really just say it out loud because I know how much it's taken for you to get to a point right now for those words to leave your lips. And uh, thank you for for saying it. Yeah. And I'm just going to pause and let you know that we're both going into an area that is very sensitive for us. So if at any stage during this chat, we either of us feel like we need to go slow. Um, no one can see the video, only the audio, but I'm going to raise my hand here on the video and that'll just mean let's just pause for a second and collect that. And or that's getting too close to home for me as well. And so let's come up a level. Um, so let's just guide each other safely through that, if that's all right. Yeah, no, thank you. That sounds really sensible. Cool. So what I heard from you is you went 15 years having no idea what was going on with yourself and keeping it inside without anyone else bearing witness to it. Is that correct? Yeah, I, um, I, I locked my lips. That's hard to believe in terms of that someone can endure that much pain by themselves. Um, not believe as in you didn't, as in like it's crazy that, that you did because, and I, I did a similar thing. Um, and I mean, th- there are very few illnesses in the world that are as uh psychiatrically confronting as OCD because it confronts your morality, it confronts your personality, it confronts everything. It occupies so much waking bandwidth and and capacity. It it debilitates your behaviour because it follows through not just with an obsession but with a behavioural action a lot of the time as well. And it is the closest thing I've ever experienced to torture, like actual torture. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to share a bit about my experience at the end, which I haven't really opened up about before. Uh, what happened in that psych ward when you got admitted? I want to come back to that, though, first. Um, all right, so first... Um well, they thought I, I think they thought I was psychotic and they did, a bunch, yep. they did a bunch of tests to check that I didn't have tumors and encephalitis and infections and things like that. Um, and I spoke with a psychiatry registrar for about 15 minutes, but we didn't go into any details. And essentially I was just um, medicated and forced to relax. Um, and then um, I... When I got 
so that was, that was in, that was in like an acute set, not an emergency, but like an acute setting. And then I got to the ICU, um, and I, I arrived by ambulance, um, which was so confronting because I thought I, I can walk like, and mm. I was on a trolley um, and I was like, I can walk. And I, and I felt like everything had been taken away from me. And I got to the ICU and um, they did this admission checklist and they, and they searched me. Um, so a psychiatric ICU, you can't have any possessions with you. Like you, everything has to be locked up at all times when you're not using it. And I remember I, I got there and they confiscated my shoelaces. And that's something I'm going to remember for the rest of my life because I was like, what the hell? I, I'm not trusted with my shoelaces. How did I get here? Um, and I mean, now I look back at that and I think, well, you know, I felt like I was, you know, stripped of my dignity and autonomy and independence and trust and everything. But what they were doing for me is taking away any way I could possibly harm myself and giving me a place where I could be safe. Um, and as you said, it's torture. And it's like, well, if they take everything away, I can't torture myself anymore. Like, it's just not a possibility for me to hurt myself if there's no way for me to do it. Um, I, I remember standing um, in the bathroom at night um, when I was meant to be asleep and all I could think of was hit your head, hit your head, hit your head. And I was like, how hard would I have to hit my head to cause a bleed and die? And I, I was like, and I, I would nod my head like a tick. And um, I, I, I really thought I was losing the plot. Um, and not only that, but that I'd, I'd like never recover from it. Um, I was so scared. Yeah. I'll bet. Uh, that place that you were in mentally, I've been there. I've been into that lion's den. I've been into that room without a key. And it's the scariest place in the world. Um, did the nurses have to come in and stop you from doing that? Or was it more of an obsessional thought, not an actual intention? No, they, um, no, they stopped me, um, put me back in bed, covered me with blankets, gave me medication. Throughout your life, you said that there's kind of been two, I'm going to call them flavors to make it not seem so serious, but two yeah. flavors of OCD, one being yeah. violent intrusions, the other being sexual intrusions. Um, the, I think the hardest part from, f f that I've heard from you, and, and I'm kind of similar, is that 
up until the point where you're diagnosed and or then start to believe the diagnosis because that's just as hard as getting it Um, because you think, oh, I thought it was an excuse for a while. Um, They're not intrusions. They're just Mitch or they're just Lena. And so when someone says, oh, how long has the intrusions been coming on for, you know, there would be no answer to that question until I finally accepted I'm not a bad person. I'm experiencing an experience. Yeah. Because it wasn't an intrusion for me. It was just who I was. That was my thoughts. This is who I am. I'm a, I'm a fucked up person who wants to do bad things. Yeah, I hear. And in order to make the transition to there's something in there that I can connect with that can get me through the real part of me, the good part of me, and I'm going to bring that part to life more and I trust that that, that is really who I am and everything else is just the clouds and a, and a sickness going around that, that, that true good core. Yeah. And, and of the violent um, intrusions or the sexual intrusions, what do you think was harder for you? Definitely the violent one. Oh, okay. No, I say the violent ones because that's what I'm dealing with lately. Um. The, but I, I, I honestly think that the sexual intrusions, they led to the violent ones. Yeah. And I had an incident when I was 17 that was sexual of nature that I've punished myself for for 10 years violently. Okay. And so if it weren't for the sexual intrusions, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have the violent ones. Do you think that this incident when you were 17 sparked the obsessional thinking or was that present before that? No, it was present before. Um, I think that I used to think that OCD got me into that situation and if it weren't for OCD, then I wouldn't have that trauma. Um, Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah. All right. So, so I was having these um, sexual intrusions about um, who I wanted to be with intimately. And um, I had a boyfriend at the time and that was, that was going really well. Um, But I felt that the only reason that I could function sexually with him is because I loved him. Um, and I thought otherwise I was just dysfunctional. Like I had so many sexual thoughts, like I, I was not functioning. And um, so I was 17. Um, I was at a party and um, there were three guys and I thought if I if I can function sexually with these guys that I'm not in love with, then maybe I like maybe I'll be okay. Maybe I'm fine. And long story short, it turned into an assault because it didn't stop when I wanted it to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've 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 blamed myself. I'm like it was my thoughts that got me into that situation. I. I got myself into that situation. It's my fault. Mm. 
um, I felt very ashamed because, I mean, I was 17. I was locked in with school and um, there were a bunch of legal ramifications and um, it escalated and got really out of my control. Like it was something that the adults were dealing with, not me. And so I didn't deal with it as a, as a sexual trauma. I, I dealt with it as a like, you know, leave me alone. I have to do year 12. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I've forgiven myself now though. I, I, um, I realize that I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to want something and then change my mind. And Mm. any, anyone can, a lot of, a lot of sexual assaults start with it being consensual. um, And you're allowed to then change your mind. Absolutely. I've never heard it put like that before. I, it's that that really hit me hard in in a in a in a clarity way like you're allowed to want something and change your mind and i think that a lot of girls either a feel bad for the changing of mind like i don't want to lead them on or b a lot of guys don't their ego gets tarnished when that change happens and then the only way they know how to act is in anger yeah and it's the mixture of those two things where bad things happen. Yeah, yeah. Anger, uh, anger is not what you want. <laughs> no, especially not in an intimate scenario. No way. Yeah. It has no place there. Yeah. Um, so you're already feeling confused as a teenager by these thoughts and then this trauma happens and basically pours gasoline um, and then the OCD almost becomes like a self-sabotage method and reinforced as a way of coping with the trauma. Yeah. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah. Uh, that's how I understand it now. I think um, I think the violent intrusions and OCD really came out of that. Hmm. Um, and if you don't mind me asking, and I'm going to share some of mine and only share what you're comfortable with, for people who are unfamiliar with OCD, um, a lot of people think that it's the straightening disorder where you just tidy up the bookshelf <laughs> um, or if you haven't made your bed. Uh, and it's a massive, massive, massive misconception. So to clarify, OCD is thoughts that are so highly sticky and are filled with rumination that it is near on impossible, well, as it feels anyway, um, to not have that thought continuously in your mind. OCD is not only the intensity of a thought, uh, that by definition it's an unwanted thought. So... Uh, my psychologist display said to me that OCD will find the thing that you're most insecure about and fear the most and explode it into your, into your awareness um, beyond your control. So, um, so the first big differentiator is 
you have to understand people who haven't been through this need to understand obsessions by incredibly intense unwanted thoughts that plague your conscious awareness the second part of ocd that people don't understand is the compulsions so compulsions are behaviors that people do in order to get some relief from the tenacious obsessional sticky thought and for whatever reason they don't really know why in the brain that this happens but certain rituals or behaviors act as neutralizing agents to that obsession Sometimes they're related to the obsession in the instance of contamination OCD, where someone who has just washed their hands will leave the basin and say, but there is germs in the air. And so therefore my hands are recontaminated. I need to go wash them again. So that's a direct compulsion relation to an obsession. Um, Other times they're not related. So for example, um, I would have an intrusion about being possessed by the devil or hating God and I would have to blink at the sky in a certain amount of times in a certain pattern. So I would call that an unrelated compulsion, but for whatever reason it was it was my um it was my punishment or it was my relief uh, through the form of a compulsive behavior. The the obsessions and compulsions are both uh equally equally hard. Um I think obsessions because they derail your sense of self so much and the compulsions because they interfere with your day-to-day life so much because they're, they seem so mandatory. Um, they can also seem incredibly bizarre and in social settings it can be really confronting because your, your mind won't let you not do it a lot of the time. Um, I also want to clarify that for me OCD is the illness of ambiguity it is, by definition, the inability to sit with uncertainty. So in a book that I read, one of the most helpful books I've ever read, which is the Mindfulness OCD Workbook, um, as well as many others, as I went through my outpatient treatment in Louisville, Kentucky for um, OCD, um, they had this graph of this like uh, wheel of awareness. And on either sides of the graph, they showed like, almost like radio frequency coming in from either edge. And they're like, here are the millions of thoughts that we have every day in our subconscious that no one even registers, right? So you might, um, you might be walking across the road at a pedestrian crossing and in your subconscious mind, you might say things to yourself like, imagine if they didn't stop. Imagine if they just kept going through and just cleaned me up or imagine if I just jumped on the bottom of their car, right? So... Everyone occasionally has these like random thoughts that will float into conscious awareness. Like when a lot of people have experienced driving in a car and being like, what if I just changed the wheel and I just went into oncoming traffic, right? So a lot of people can relate to that. They're like, oh, I know what that's like to get that really weird thought just pop in. Think about that, but all the time with everything that you care about. It's like a magnifying glass on the periphery edges of every thought that you have making something that would usually not even register on the frequency level feel like it's at a million decibels. It's like more things, like everything is in scope. You're so aware of everything and it's not only in scope, it's intensified through the roof. So the reason is, is because most people who don't have this pattern of thinking will have an unwanted thought and it won't register 
because to the brain, the brain goes, it's not significant. It doesn't threaten my life. So it's permanently just filtering and doing all this amazing work for you. And if that happens in your day-to-day life, you should be grateful every day that your brain does all that heavy lifting for you without you having to think about it. What happens with OCD is all those thoughts don't get filtered because your brain is on high alert. It's searching out for those thoughts. It wants to know when those thoughts are happening because it uses that as a sign of danger. So it goes, if that thought's there, I'm in danger. So I have to always be on the lookout for it. And then it starts the cycle of perpetuation. Um, So in someone's mind who's like, when you wash your hands and you walk out of the basin, if you've never experienced this, Technically, if you really search the crevasses of your mind, you would probably find a thought in there somewhere, which is, are they clean enough? Or do you reckon there's bacteria in the air? But it would just seldom come into your awareness because your brain automatically does a mathematical calculation in your head and it goes, without you even knowing it, it'll go, oh, that's got a 0.00001% chance of likelihood. We're not even going to push this into his field of view. But with someone with OCD, they're looking for that. They grab that 0.0001 and they make it feel to themselves like it is 100% what's going to happen and 100% who you are. So hopefully that paints a bit of a picture for the layperson as to what it's like to experience that when you've never had it before. It is an inability to tolerate uncertainty, the inability to for something that's 0.1% of a chance um, you can't hack that and it feels like everything. You personalize it, you're aware of way more things and it feels very true for you so much so that if you don't do a behavior, it is who you are and it means X, Y, Z. I think the hard part is, is that the X, Y, Z, i.e. the outcome of if I don't do this compulsion um, or if I don't challenge or get sucked up in this obsessive ruminating thought, then something bad's going to happen. And that something bad is not acceptable in your mind. So you force yourself, you, you would compromise every area of your life so as to not let the outcome of the what if I don't do this happen. Or, or what, you know, and, and so it is so, so tenacious. And for every moment of pain you've ever been in, I want you to know I see you and I understand you and I appreciate how much of an impact that that has on your life. If you're open to it, and this is kind of where I started before I went on explaining what it was, um, to give context to people, what are some examples of the intrusions that you would have, whether it be sexual or violent? Okay, so um, I guess we can kind of go in chronological order. So it started with the sexual intrusions and that was, um, images of naked bodies. Um, mm-hmm. I felt like I could strip people in my mind and see friends, family, teachers, anyone um, naked, and then I'd think about them um, touching themselves or touching me or really unpleasant things because I thought these people – I don't, I'm not thinking, I don't want to think about these people in that way. Um, and then, and then there was the bat. I think that was, I think that's an intrusion, the baseball bat where I hit myself and I, you know, see two of me. Um, 
I think I, I imagine people strangling me. Um, I, I imagine violent things happening to me during intercourse. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of like a violent sexual intersection, um, where it's just one on top Mm -hmm. of the other. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I guess since I, since I became a doctor, um, I, I'm telling myself all the time, what if I kill someone? Um, what if I'm not good enough? What if I make a mistake? What if my patients don't like me? What if, what if I am responsible for all the bad things that are going to happen in their life? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and then I'll punish myself for being incompetent and that'll be, you know, I, I described this to someone the other, um, the other day, like I'll be lying on my pillow trying to get to sleep and I'll imagine a screwdriver going in one ear and screwing me to the bed so that I can't move mm-hmm. or, or like an, an ax um, chopping off my head. Um, mm. and if it's, and if it's not just in my imagination, it's like, I, I have my normal run, you know, everyone has their route and on my run, I cross two bridges and I think, what if I jumped off the bridge? Mm. Um, when I'm driving my car, what if I crash the car when I'm riding my bike? What if I ride into a tram? I take medications twice a day. When I take my medications, what if I overdosed? Mm-hmm. Um, I just feel notice like I'm, the pattern here of the what if, just for the listeners. Yeah. Notice the what if, yeah, yeah. It's that constant questioning that I'm going to do something dangerous to myself or something dangerous to other people. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I want to clarify that you know some people might be thinking I have thoughts of you know thinking about people naked does that mean i have ocd or that doesn't mean i have ocd yes the important distinguishing feature here is is that it is intrusive unwanted and intense as in it's happening it feels like it's happening to you almost like a force external to you is planting this inside your brain to the point where you're like i don't want this anymore and it just keeps coming 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 so so for anyone that's thinking that doesn't sound blah, 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 like OCD, that, that's the difference. Now, there also might be people listening to this call going, oh, my God, maybe this is me. Um, just hold your horses on that, everyone. If you've ever heard me do a keynote, uh, and I'm hoping to get this out in a TED Talk soon because it's the fundamental basis of literally every single learning I have or write about or whatever, mental health or the or the symptoms of mental illness every single emotion in the DSM the diagnostics and statistics manual is experienced by every single human on the planet on a weekly to monthly basis from anxiety to depression to obsessions to compulsions to mania to hallucination they are all very normal human experiences that we cannot get rid of even if we wanted to the only difference between Whereas it being a problem and not is if the intensity and duration of those natural things are in such ex- excess 
that they're imp- impeding your ability to cope. So is it normal to be obsessional sometimes? Yes. Is it normal to do compulsive behavior? Some of us, you know, might be really tidy or neat, blah, blah, blah. That's not OCD. That's just our natural tendency to compulsively want control and or remove uncertainty. This is a whole new kettle of fish when we're talking the most acute end of this natural phenomenon occurring in such a way that it starts to erode different areas of your life. And, and as we've highlighted now a few times, as you can see, it goes after the things that you want to happen least or, the, or that you're most fearful of. Um, I think what whoever's listening to this will pick up on, which I, I pick up on now listening to you is, you would never guess that someone as put together as you, a successful medical doctor, um, beautiful, wealthy, I, I imagine, uh, better than most of the population, um, would ever have the experiences of, uh, I sometimes think a drill is going my, into my head and bolting me to my bed. Like you just would never pick it, right? And um, I think that that's part of the part of what makes this illness or any illness really in in the mind so hard is that it's very atypical, i.e. not aligned to how we present on the outside world a lot of the time. And that is fucking lonely, fucking confusing, and uh, one of the hardest parts about it. You know, going through your own pain and your own intrusions or whatever illness you're going through is hard enough then to feel like a complete alien to yourself and those that you love is just as hard, if not harder. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So before we get on to some of the ways that you've been dealing with this and coping with this, because I think that's a really, really, really important part of the story to tell. Um, and it is coping. It's not, you know, curing. Um I just want to share a bit of my context that I have never shared before. So I have had a long history with OCD. Um, that's very public. I, uh, my mum first saw me repetitively touching the dashboard of her car and blinking repetitively saying the word God over and over when I was about seven years old. Now, where all that started is something I don't talk about, which is... Um, I had what what I would call, not that we're competing here, but I've seen it written as the worst form of OCD, which is uh, pedophilia OCD. Um, so for me, this was triggered, I mean, my whole family has a history of mental illness, um, severe in terms of agoraphobia, depression, PTSD. So I was going to get something, but... For me, the catalyst was, I remember vividly, um, my fr- when I was about five, I would say, my friend and I at a sleepover were experimenting with each other, naked in bed, another boy. Um, I'm a straight male today, but at that time, obviously, boys do their thing. Um, well, some do, I did, um, which, again, racked me with guilt my entire life until recently, really. Um, and my dad um, caught us and I got berated. I got in a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble. And um, there's more context to mine and my dad's relationship 
which puts that more into context. He's a, an amazing man, and this isn't a story to, um, to shun him, quite the opposite. He's uh, like my best, best mate today, and um, we've been on an am- amazing journey together, but he used to gaslight me a fair bit and guilt trip me, and to me this was like the ultimate guilt trip. And I remember in that moment being like, oh, I just did something really wrong. And I didn't really think much of it. And then it probably would have been two years later, I was around at my friend's place and his mum came home and said to, to, my fa- to, to the family um, that my friend's little brother had been sexually abused. And I didn't even know what that was. And I was like, what's that? And they're like, well, an older man has touched this, this boy. And um, in that moment, my whole world imploded because I went, I'm a pedophile. I, I went, well, what I did then was that, and I am a sexual monster. And, um, and I had no idea. Like this is well before puberty. I, w- I would have been about seven. And it was from that day onwards, I don't remember exactly how it went, but I, I started doing a lot of weird shit. I started touching light switches 150 times. And if not, I, I, I was a pedophile. I would have intrusive thoughts all day around it. I would have to pray a certain amount of times in a certain order. I couldn't touch certain tiles when I was walking. It got to such a point that even in primary school, I used to walk around the school with my, um, with my hands tucked in a fist underneath my armpits because every second person I walk past, I'd have to stop them and say, sorry, did I just accidentally touch you? Did I just accidentally brush up next to you? And, um, and I mean, I would start to lose friends over this because they were like, what the fuck? Why, why are you asking me this? And I, I would, I remember going around to my neighbor's house like three days after we were hanging out together in the, in the yard, I would probably would have been about 10. And I was like, Hey, remember three days ago, did I touch you when we were walking past the tree? And he's like, what? Mm. And in my mind, I went home and I was lying in bed and I, and I went through every split second of that interaction. And I tried to think about, did I, feel any, did I feel any sensory information from my hand on his shirt? Like I went through every minor detail to think, what's the likelihood and possibility that I might have brushed past him in the genital area and, and, and done that? Every single time I would see an, like an ad on TV that had a younger person in it, I would, I, would th- I would go, you just thought about something sexual. You wanted to touch them. You wanted to sleep with them, didn't you? And that would go over and over. And then I'd have to analyze my intention. I'd be like, did I? And so I'd play the scenario out over and over and over and over. And I'd look to see if there was a response in my crutch area. You know, did I, did I like that? Like, and that over and over and over. And... Um, and I remember that, so my mum's my best friend and she's my, thank fucking God for her. Honestly, I wouldn't be here without her. But I remember going up to her when I was little and I was trying to put words to this and I was like, I'm having thoughts about this, this and this. And she, she had me at 23 and uh, when she was 23, um, she's now in her mid-50s. So, you know, this is decades and decades ago when things were very different. And you can imagine my, 
it was my mum and I, she was a single mum. My dad had to move away when I was younger and going to her and saying, this is what I'm thinking and her being like, oh, okay. And I could tell, no matter what she said, I could tell that she would look at me and be like, something's fucking wrong with this kid. Um, and in that moment, I'm like, that's when the real damage started to happen is because I'm like, holy fuck, even my own mum thinks that I'm a monster. That's how I internalized it. She absolutely didn't. But I'm like, even she thinks I'm a monster. Um, and then there were so many different variations that would come out of that, largely sexual orientated Um the tiniest thing is you couldn't even imagine like going to the shops and seeing a, a little kid walk past would be an ordeal because I'd be like, oh, my God, I now have to spend hours dissecting if I looked at their hair too long. Um, and by the way, this mm-hmm. is in contrast with my everyday life of having heaps of friends, getting 97.3 in my UAI, um, representing sport and I, you know, all the shit that looked like I had was fine, but so fucking not fine. And the thing was, you know, people had said that they were nervous before and maybe sad, but fucking no one was coming close to the experiences that I was. And so, you know, I, I, I was just like, I'm a bad person and, uh, I'm a crazy person and essentially where that kind of melted into was that in my late teens after a smoke of marijuana, um, I've never done drugs in my life, but in less than a handful of times I've smoked weed experimenting as a teenager and that triggered a enormous panic attack which brought on the onset of depersonalization disorder which was now a whole other kettle of fish that I was dealing with amongst the OCD that was as bad, if not worse, um, because it was like permanently being on the brink of a panic attack 24-7-365. So amidst those two disorders playing around, there was strong suicidal ideation, strong. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the... I would kind of get in moments where I would get relief and respite and, oh, God, the amount of, the amount of nights my mum would stay up with me just being like, okay, well, tell me what else you're feeling. Tell me what else you're thinking. And I would just be so ashamed, so embarrassed, so ashamed. And I would run downstairs and I'd almost have to confess to her the things that I'd been thinking. And, you know, what she didn't know at the time, and thank fucking God she handled it like this, is that she was like, you know, the worst thing that you can do in those situations is feed them and give them validity, mm. you know, and worry and be like, oh, fuck, maybe that is and da 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 and, and eventually she worked out how to manage me. She had such faith in who I was and, and that's why I credit everything in my life to her is that even though sometimes I, I read her as, holy shit, this kid's a monster and he's fucked up, Deep down what I could feel from her was, I know who you are. I know who you are. And you will find that too one day. And until that time, 
I'm going to hold that for you. And so she would, you know, I'd come to her with some outlandish shit and she would say, maybe. Okay, cool. Maybe that is true. Maybe you are that person. Maybe you're going to do that. It's okay. And thank fucking God for that because, and we'll get to treatment later, but the only way you can treat this is not trying to fight it, but by actually starting to accept it and go, maybe that is me. Maybe that is me. Maybe I just fucking thought that. Maybe I'm a fucking pedophile. Maybe I wanted to stab that person. Maybe I do want to jump out of a bridge. Yes. Yes. All right. You fucking win. You fucking win. Have me. You fucking win. <laughs> I'm, I'm all these things. I'm all these fucking things that you say I am. I hear you. And, but, but like you, I had no framework to operate in because I, I was diagnosed with OCD at seven in terms of touching things. But by the way, none of that was, I didn't talk about why I was doing that or the thoughts that were going through my head. So I had no idea that that pedophilia stuff was OCD and the fear of it. Mm. So it wasn't until I was 25, I was working for Microsoft as a global product manager in Seattle when I had my ultimate breakdown and I saw this video on YouTube that saved my life, which I've talked about on numerous occasions. I don't talk about the contents of that video because it's incredibly private, but the two things that he had and said was, I have depersonalization. I had, I had no idea that was even a thing. And this is five years ago, by the way. This isn't a long time ago. I had no idea this was a thing and I'd been suffering from it since I was 17, just thinking that I was fucking insane, hmm. that this was not anxiety. This was something way worse. I'd never read or heard or anything in the same ballpark. And this guy s- described it to the T. And I was like, oh, this is a thing. This is a thing with boundaries and a word and and a and then he also happened to have the exact same flavor of OCD that I had mm. which was the sexual intrusions particularly around young people um I had a lot of religious OCD as well because as part of that I believed that I was immoral and possessed and so all that stuff mm. and and I remember walking down the street in Seattle watching this video and falling to my knees on the side of the road at midday on a Tuesday and screaming my lungs out, screaming. The whole neighbourhood would have heard, screaming almost like for the first time someone started to dangle a key in front of me. I felt like I was trapped in this prison with this lion that has been ripping me to shreds from the moment that I could walk and talk. And it's like someone just turned around the corner and showed me this key and went, oh, you want to cut, you want to get out, do you? Because imagine going your entire life thinking that you're a, a fucked up demonic person and that you're insane and someone in an, in an instant going, no, that's not who you are. And actually, this all makes sense. And this is all going to be okay. And this is, there's a framework to understand this and a model to view this and reflect on it and you don't need to hold on to it, that in your identity anymore. And it was a lot, it's been a long road since then of a whole lot of things from therapy to medication and beyond. But it was that moment where I screamed, where I, it, was, it was a mixture of more anger than I could 
ever fill an entire universe with that I'd gone this long, this confused and this fucked up and, and this self-deprecating without having this information mixed with the relief of maybe I can turn that key and maybe I can live free of this harness that has kept me so paralyzed. Yeah. And it was that day that changed my life forever where I started to truly understand who I was and put me on a mission towards mental health. Um, so that is a long way of kind of, and, and for a long time, like just like you telling someone out loud, the things that are going through your head, the moment someone hears the words, what you just thought about a little kid, you know, they're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And you're like, no, I don't want to, like, I don't want to. And, but then you, you say those words and you start to not even know if you believe it. Cause yeah. the OCD is so fucking strong that it's just like, no, you do though. Cause you can feel that, can't you, Mitch? You just felt it. You do like that. You do want that. And you're like, no, I fucking don't. You're like, but didn't you just like look down at her boobs and she's got to be below 16 years old? You looked. I saw you looked. And I was like, no, I didn't. I might have seen it in the periphery vision. And my brain would be like, yeah, you did. You fucking looked. Yeah, and you have that dialogue with yourself in your mind trying to convince yourself of something and you're never going to find an answer. Never. Never. And so I ended up in, because I was scared for my life, flying to this hospital and, and they was, and I researched this article where it was the first time I saw written down in paper the scientific term of OCD and also its very well-studied fear of pedophilia um, flavour. And just seeing those words written down and seeing the, the manifestation and the symptoms of it, I was like, oh, my God, this is me to a T. And I rocked up to this doctor's office and I, I stayed there for two weeks and I was thinking this guy is just going to write me off as a, f- like, fruitcake and that he's not actually going to believe me. He thinks that this is an excuse and I actually am a really bad person and I do want these things. And these doctors were so professional, obviously because they've been dealing with people like this the whole time, that... I could tell he wasn't judging me, which started to allow me to believe it. It's, you know, I'm really opening up to this guy. He's seeing all of me and he's like, he didn't think that I was that person. And I started to be like, fuck, maybe this is a real thing. Because for a while you're like, oh, this diagnosis isn't you. Here's all the reasons that it's not you, you know, like you're just using this as a way out. You're, you're actually really a bad person. Um, and by the way, if you want to know how people treat OCD for everyone out there, it's there's never, ever enough certainty to make it go away. Think about OCD like the most pure form of anxiety. You cannot challenge the thought. You cannot reassure it anymore. You can't, like, unlike most anxiety where it's just a thought distortion and you can, you can say, well, you can challenge it with rationality and say the likelihood's low and da-da-da and I recalibrate that. CBT doesn't work because the, the need for certainty is too high. The, the only thing that works is exposure, exposure and response prevention where instead of trying to create more certainty and challenge it, you actually have to come in the other way and create a buffer room for that potentially being true. 
So, you know, for someone who has germ OCD, a successful outcome of that treatment, the last treatment will be that person with their arm in a toilet bowl for five minutes without removing it. Yep. And what that represents, whether it's that specific flavor or not, is you have to be able to look those thoughts in the eye and say maybe. Yep. Yeah. You don't need to, you don't need to disprove it. You don't need to agree with it. You just need to say maybe, but for now, I'm just going to continue on. Because when you starve it of the compulsions and those compulsions can be the rumination, it starts to lose a bit of fuel. How yeah. does all that sit with you? Oh, so that's like me saying to myself, maybe I'm going to kill myself. That's, that's how that translates for me. Um, and, it, and that's really scary. I, I learned um, earlier in the year the difference between like suicidal ideation and suicidal obsession. And they're yeah. different. They're different. And it's, different. it's kind of like, I think I, I, I'm just like drawing a comparison here. It's like, you're not, you're not actually a pedophile. You're just having these thoughts and they're unwanted thoughts. I'm, I'm having unwanted thoughts of killing myself, but you're so scared that it's true um, that it, it really disturbs you and it makes you so anxious and makes you feel like you need to do all these things to make it go away. Um, and it, it's fucked me up to such an extent that like up until the last couple years, honestly, I've been, I've just made peace with the fact that I can't have kids. Wow. I was just like, I'll never be able to have kids because I won't be able to survive. It would be like a permanent trigger just existing in my house. And believe it or not, I'm starting to become very open and ready for the thought of having kids. Oh, yay. And that's how, yeah. that's how far I've come because yeah. I, I truly have got to a stage where, and it can flare up from time to time where the doubt will creep back in. But for the most part, I know exactly who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And getting getting to this point has been real tough. I mean, the doctors would sit me in a room with a television. <laughs> this is actually even hard to verbalize. The doctors would sit me in a room with a television and they would play commercials on TV with children on it and not make me look away. Wow, that sounds so hard. And they would do that because looking away was a form of a compulsion. It was yeah. a way of trying to break the cycle without letting the obsession be there and not challenge it. Yeah. And, and so they would literally monitor my eyes and they'd be like, you're looking away, keep looking at the screen. Wow, that's torture in itself, isn't it? Yes, but unfortunately with this stuff, the only way around is through. Yeah. And you have to be willing, you must be willing to be strong enough to go through. Yeah. My psychologist always tells me to be reluctantly willing. She says if I'm if I'm reluctant, it means I'm doing something that's challenging me, which is going to help me, but um you need to you need to want to go through in some capacity. Yeah. 
And in the interest of safety, there's actually one that I'm still not ready to go towards. So um, in all the beauty of what the world is, during my stay at this clinic, because I was experiencing such extreme levels of distress, it unlocked something else in my brain and a whole new flavor of OCD was born during that treatment um, that I had never experienced before. That was actually of everything that I've ever experienced in my life. That's the, that, that thing that, that new offshoot that emerged during that treatment is to this date, the closest thing, the closest that anything's ever come to killing me. Wow. And I don't think I'll ever be ready to talk about what that specific one was. It was totally different to, to the one I was talking about before. Um, but I got on top of it and here I am. Wow. Oh, I'm so happy for you. Yeah. So talk to me, talk to me about what today looks like for you, Lena, and, and what has been a turning point for you. Obviously, well, I want to know how are you doing day to day and what things are helping you at least help you pop out the side of feeling like you're in the middle of it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, kind of as you've already touched on accepting the diagnosis and accepting that this is something I have to live with. Um, it got me to where I am today because with acceptance came, um, a lot of reading and listening to podcasts and, um, you know, watching movies and TV shows and, and learning about mental health. Um, and, you know, kind of coming to terms with the fact that I'm imperfect and, and that's okay. Um, in earlier in the year, I had um, I had this realization where work work wasn't the beautiful distraction and dream come true that I thought it was. Um, work was actually really damaging me, um, and it took me it took me so long to figure that out because. I've always been so socially anxious that I never made any close friends at work. And I left medical school and went to a hospital where I didn't know anyone. And, and I was ritualizing and reassuring myself and checking and doing all this OCD stuff without anyone knowing that that was abnormal for me and no one in my personal life knowing that I was doing that at work. And I had this, um, I get panic attacks. <laughs> Ooh, I get panic attacks. And I had this panic attack earlier in the year where I was so close to being like, oh, no, I, I can't do this. I need to end my life. And then I was like, what the hell? I have a great life. I was like, oh, no, okay. And then early this year, that's when the penny dropped. Okay, I have OCD. And since I've accepted that and learned about it, I'm actually able to engage in my therapy and um, – you know, find the right balance of who to talk to and what medications to take. And I don't know. I just, I think it's, um, have you heard of acceptance commitment therapy? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. So I listened, um, Stephen Hayes, he has a TED talk and I, and I watched his TED talk and it was like this amazing light bulb moment where I'm like, aha, you know, as soon as I stop running away from the panic attacks, 
they won't be as bad anymore. They won't have as much power over me. And now I'm like, I had, I had this meeting a month ago or so, and I was so nervous about it. And I was like, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen in this meeting with work? The worst thing that could happen was I would have a panic attack. And I was like, all right, great. So I go into this meeting, I have a panic attack and then I get on with it. And that's how it's going to go. And I, and I came to terms with it. I was like, there's nothing to be ashamed of or embarrassed over. It's, it's a difficult meeting. It's, you know, with people I don't know. Um, and, and then as soon as I realized like, well, so what if I panic? Like it just, it, it kind of evaporates a little bit. The only thing panic is, is the fear of fear itself. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and my panic attacks come from not completing my OCD compulsions, right? So, you know, if I, if I'm not afraid of not doing my compulsions, which, which by the way, are purely mental, I don't, um, I don't have any physical compulsions, which is why it took me so long to realize, okay, this is OCD. Mm -hmm. It's all in my head. Um, yeah, once, once I came to terms with that, then there was, there was no reason to, you know, do the compulsions. And that, that's how I've, that's how I've kind of turned the corner, I guess. And how, uh, I, do you feel like you're coping okay day to day? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I've had some time off work um, since coming to terms with the fact that work was, um, you know, impinging on my, life a lot um and now I'm <laughs> I, I don't know I've, I've never been better um I I and I and I really think that that once I accepted the diagnosis and I started learning about it knowledge knowledge has just helped me so much understanding things yeah I'm really happy to hear that I, I think um I agree with you uh, that what they call psychoeducation, but um, put more simply insight into your experience. So starting to understand your mind, if you have a diagnosis, starting to understand the ins and outs of what that looks like has a massive benefit. It's one of the main parts of getting better, I think, is the education part for your own, own mind. It starts to become less scary and more workable mixed with therapy, particularly exposure therapy for, mm. for anyone on the anxiety spectrum and um, medication and uh, exercise and a job that you feel is aligned to your calling and your purpose and sleep and all those things that go into it. But I think one of the biggest ones and still to this day is the biggest one for me is um, not feeling alone, mm. feeling worthy of love as I am right now you know, mm. feeling seen for who I fully am, warts and all, this is me, all cards on the table, as real as I can get. No wonder my, my organization is called Heart on My Sleeve, here it all is. Yeah. And feeling worthy of love in that moment, nothing is more powerful than that. Yeah, and I mean, that's why I'm doing this because I, in part of my learning, I was like one in 40 people, it might be more than that, have OCD, 
how do I not know anyone with OCD? I know more than 40 people in my life and I didn't know anyone. And you know what? I, I learned about your story and I was like, if you're so brave enough to tell your story and help me, well, like, what if, what if, what if there's a little, you know, med student, you know, getting into med school and has OCD and they, they just need some guidance. Like, I don't know. I would have, I think I would have benefited from, from knowing someone with OCD when I was going through my rock bottom. That, that sentence just there is literally the entire reason Heart on My Sleep exists, to pass it on. Yeah. That's it. All we're trying to do here is pass it on. We're trying to, we're trying to hold, use our story and make meaning from it so that someone else can benefit from our pain and we heal together through that connection. And so what I can guarantee as much as my need for certainty will allow it <laughs> that there is someone listening to this right now who you have helped significantly and perhaps even changed slash saved a life. Um, so from the bottom of my heart, Lena, thank you for passing it on. My absolute pleasure, Mitch. <laughs>